As I record this, listeners, we are smack dab in the middle of the holiday season, so we're shaking things up this episode. Welcome to our very first special bonus Q&A episode. Bonus special Q&A episode? Bonus Q&A mini-sode? Obviously, I'm not totally sure what to call it, but I think you get the idea. On this special episode, which I'll call a bonus since it's the second to drop in a week, I'm answering a set of listener questions about everything from my marriage to my freelance writing career to my favorite books. I had so much fun reading through all the questions that came through via social media, and just as much fun answering them for today's show. I hope you enjoyed listening too. I mention a lot of book titles in this episode, but don't stress about jotting any of them down because they're all listed in the show notes at www.ssrpodcast.com listen. You'll also find links to buy them there, and those links actually offer a way for you to support SSR. If, after listening to this episode, you're thinking about purchasing any of the books I talk about, please consider doing it through those links, as a small portion of the proceeds comes back to me so I can continue to produce this great content in 2019 and beyond. With the new year upon us, I also want to take a moment to say a big thank you for your support in 2018. In some ways, it feels like I've been running SSR for years, but the truth is that we launched just six months ago, and I can honestly say that starting the show has been the absolute highlight of my year. I couldn't have done it without all of you, and I'm so proud of the community that we're building around books, nostalgia, and good conversation. We have some amazing episodes lined up for the new year, and I can't wait to share them with you. We'll be back on January 8th with the first installment of Manuary, and I promise it's going to make you literally LOL. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this Q&A episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on your listening platform of choice, to share it with a friend, and to take a moment to leave a review of it on iTunes if you feel so inspired. I'd also love to have you following us on social media. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and by searching the SSR Podcast on Facebook. Trust me, you won't want to miss anything that's coming in the new year. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. Normally, this would be the part of the show where I would welcome our guest and tell you more about the book that we're chatting about. But this episode is a little different. It's our first ever Q&A episode, my first ever full solo show. Um, So here I am sitting at my desk talking to myself. And I'm excited but a little nervous to see how it goes. I'm so grateful to everyone who submitted a question. Thank you. Thank you for doing that and for your interest in me and my reading habits and the podcast itself. I think it's going to be really fun to get to know each other a little bit better today through this episode. Okay, so if we're going to get to know each other better, let's jump right in with a personal question. Begar on Instagram asked how I met my hubby. I love this question. And for those who don't know, my husband's name is Matt. We've been married for about two and a half years. And as of this coming July, July 2019, we'll have been together for 10 years, which is crazy. Believe it or not, we actually go back even further than that. We met for the first time actually in eighth grade when we were about 13, I think. I was the new girl at school and he was 
he hates when I say this, but it's true. He'll really hate that I'm saying this on the podcast. He was a cool guy. We were in a lot of the same classes throughout high school, but there were about 800 kids in our class and we were in very different groups. And I think in such a big school, when you are in different groups, it's really easy to kind of just like not even be on each other's radar socially. I was well-liked, but mostly focused on things like the school paper and student government and hanging out with my family in my spare time. As I already mentioned, he was a cool guy, so he was a star soccer player who was also in honors classes. By our senior year, we'd managed to pick up a few mutual friends, and there was a whole thing that I've, I've been hearing about for years about how he wanted to ask me to the prom but was beat to the punch by one of my friends. He maintains to this day that he asked me to the prom and I said no, but I'm here to tell you that that never happened. I do believe he meant to ask me because I'd heard that through the grapevine from my best friend back in the day, but he did not actually ask me. So if he ever tells you that, you know that he's wrong. From there, we both kind of went our separate ways. He went to college near where we grew up at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and I went to George Washington University in Washington, D.C. About a year and a half later, we reconnected when he and one of those mutual friends I mentioned came down to celebrate the 4th of July in D.C. I was working there for the summer. I spent a lot of time in college working for the admissions office, and I told them that they could crash on my couch if they wanted, if they wanted to come see the fireworks and just kind of like enjoy the D.C. party that happened on the 4th of July. I'm about to be super cliche, but the rest is pretty much history after that. We had the best time together over that 4th of July weekend, and we started talking almost every day. He came to see me in D.C. a few more times before school started again. We went to see a Dave Matthews concert together back home. He visited my family during our annual trip to the Jersey Shore. We ate pints of ice cream in the parking lots of many gas stations. And by the first day of classes our sophomore year, we were calling each other boyfriend and girlfriend. We stuck together through about four years of long distance before we both moved to New York. And in June 2016, we got married. So there's that love story. I think it's a good one. Hugh Steffner on Instagram wants to know more about my time in publishing and my decision to go into freelance. So I've mentioned and hinted a few times about the fact that I worked in book publishing right after I graduated from college, and I've been quiet on those details. Um, I'm really glad I got this question because... I do think it's time I share a little bit more. I'm always careful about sharing too many details just because I want to be very respectful of that experience, which was overall a really good one. And I think anytime you are talking about leaving a job or leaving any kind of a stage in your life, there's risk of there being misunderstandings about why you left. And um, I just have never really wanted to go there. I, like I said, had a very good experience for the most part. And um, maybe it's just time that I share a little bit more so you can get a feel for what happened and what my experience was like. Um, so here's that history, or at least a piece of it. I studied journalism in college, but I ended up testing out an internship with a literary agent near DC during my junior year because I was having kind of a quarter-life crisis about whether or not I wanted to be a traditional kind of news reporter because that was sort of the track I felt I was on with my classes at GW. I ended up sticking with the internship with the literary agent for about three semesters, and because of that and because of how much I enjoyed that, I was committed mentally to going to New York and working for a major publisher after I graduated. Luckily for me, that's exactly what happened, and I do feel very blessed that I got the chance to really like follow exactly the path that I wanted to follow when I graduated from college. I got hired into a job 
that was really my dream, especially at the time. I got my foot in the door in a sales function, and I never really thought that I wanted to work in sales, but I had the idea that I would have the chance to move into something a little bit more creative or editorial eventually. But in the meantime, I, I was genuinely happy. I couldn't have been happier to be surrounded by book people and to be a part of the business that I really loved. The publisher I worked for was and is still responsible for publishing some of my personal favorite books and many of the books that are generally most loved by like everyone in the world. So it was a great spot to be in. In the almost five years that I worked there, I had great mentors and I learned a lot. I was lucky enough to be promoted a few times and to get exposure to a few different departments. I got to move around a little bit and learn from different people and learn different aspects of the publishing business. In the end, though, I realized that the track I gotten myself on was just not the right fit. There really wasn't a way for me to transition into the editorial and creative roles that I dreamed of, and I just didn't see a future for myself in sales. I think when I first got the job, I was so taken with the business and I loved the people I worked with so much and I respected my mentors so much that I thought that I could kind of adapt to being somebody who loved sales. Um, But in the end, I just realized that that was not a good long-term plan for me. And at a certain point, I looked around and I realized that I didn't really want any of the jobs that would have been easily available to me when I grew up. And that was a scary thought because I felt so committed to what I was doing. I'm a serious perfectionist by nature. And so Finding myself in that situation really affected me and my health. I was coming home and crying almost every night. And mind you, this was all happening like right after my wedding. So that was a bummer. And I was coming back to some bad habits around control and food that hadn't been an issue for me for years. So these were obviously red flags, and I decided that I needed to make some really big decisions. And I had some friends at that point who'd recently left the company and started writing freelance full-time. And since my original dream had always been to be a writer, again, I'd been a journalism major and had always loved to write, I thought I could maybe give the freelance thing a try myself. If nothing else, it would give me a chance to make some money while I caught my breath and figured out what I would do next or if I would get another 9-to-5 job or what my next move would be. So that leads me to the next question. Kay Red What asked me on Instagram if the switch to freelance was scary. Of course it was. Putting in my notice was terrifying. I don't like confrontation. And I was very stressed about the idea that my boss and my mentors would be disappointed in me or think that I didn't appreciate everything that they'd done for me so far in my career. I also was scared that people were judging me for leaving my job so soon after I got married. I didn't like how it looked. I was worried that people were talking about me and this like plan to work only until I got a husband and then quit. Again, this is just one of those situations where you think people are much more concerned about you than they probably really are. But I was also scared of disappointing my parents and the people who had supported me in my career so far. I knew they thought I was making a mistake. I was told by several people at my company that I was making a mistake. I was told by several people at my company that they expected to see me back in a few months because they didn't think that my plan to go freelance would work. I was also scared of not being able to make enough money to contribute to the new partnership that I had with with my husband at the time. The good thing there was that publishing isn't a super lucrative industry, so I didn't need to make millions of dollars, but I just was nervous about being able to make it on my own at all. And I think maybe one of my biggest fears is that I might find out that I wasn't actually a good writer or that I didn't have the discipline it takes to find new jobs as a freelancer. So yeah, it was really scary. Until then, I'd always been on a very linear, quote-unquote, traditional track, and it felt really weird to be stepping away from what I felt I was supposed to be doing. Luckily, we had plenty of savings, and I have an incredibly loving and supportive husband who gave me the most amazing speech about how there is more to contribute in a marriage than money. 
It was super wise. Um, I have so much gratitude for him and the way he talked me through that process. We set milestones together for ourselves. It was the kind of thing where it was like, if I'm not making money by January, I'll look for a nine to five. If I'm not making more money by March, I'll look for a nine to five. If I don't have three more clients by September, I'll look for a nine to five. I was lucky enough to have good connections and pick up the kind of momentum that allowed me to keep outrunning those milestones. And here we are over two years later, still at it. My bookstagram pal and fellow freelancer, Molly Reeds, says that she wants to know all things about my biz. She asks how I stay motivated working for myself and how I avoid procrastination since, again, I work for myself. Okay, so first, some basics about my day job. As many of you know, I am a full-time freelance writer, but that can mean lots of different things. And for me, it means that I write lifestyle stories about things like relationships, wellness, career, personal finance. I also write essays and profiles for a big range of online and print publications, including Marie Claire, Cosmopolitan, Real Simple, Britain Co., The Kitchen, Ravishly Racked, and more. I also run blogs and work on web content for several small businesses. There are lots of ebbs and flows to the freelance life, and it requires a lot of hustle, which is a word that I know can be annoying, but I love the freedom it's given me to stretch creatively and work on projects like SSR and grow as a writer. Over time, I've built up my business so that it now pays about what my 9 to 5 did, at least most months and sometimes more, and that's a pretty cool feeling. I've always been an introvert and I don't mind spending lots of time alone. And I think that's really helped me stay comfortable in this kind of unique working arrangement. As for tips on motivation and avoiding procrastination, I do have a few of those too. The first thing I would say is that I'm really reliant on systems. I'm a diehard paper planner kind of girl, and I use both a standard kind of planner. I'm a big fan of the Passion Planner if you're looking for a new brand, and I'll link that in the show notes, and a more big picture goals planner. These are called Power Sheets, which I'll also link in the show notes. I spend a lot of time breaking down what needs to happen every month, every week, and then every day, and then that translates into super specific to-do lists. Sometimes it feels like all of this planner work is excessive, but then I remind myself that I used to have real human bosses who would sit down with me and talk through all of this stuff, and I realized that making myself accountable by using these tools has been extremely helpful. Something else that's really helpful is maintaining a schedule and routine, and I think anybody who's ever worked from home or worked for themselves can attest to this. When you work from home, it can be really tempting to keep things very loose with things like your wake-up time and your workspace and even things like what you wear during the day, and I do go through those phases, but I'm at my best with all of my work when I keep things consistent and try to stay in a routine as much as possible. Those to-do lists really help keep me on track with that routine. The other thing that I've had to learn to be a successful freelancer is to strike the right balance between hustling all the time and just being patient. As I've built my writing business over the last two years, I found myself at times wondering if I was doing enough to put myself out there. In a nine to five job, I think it can be easier to see the next promotion or the next raise or the next step in your career. And when you work for yourself, those milestones are more challenging to wrap your head around. I've had to teach myself not to panic because I didn't see the next big success right around the corner and to trust that each new opportunity would lead to another, even if it takes a little more time. Finally, and this is something that I think a lot of us have to work on in lots of different aspects of our lives, I'm always working on not comparing myself to other writers and freelancers. There are months when the work I have on my plate feels less glamorous than others, and I'm tempted to judge myself for being less cool than some of the writers I follow on social media. But here's what I figured out. Ultimately, I've established a steady income for myself, I get to work on awesome projects for media outlets, and I have the ability to bring passion projects like this podcast to life. So it's all good, and I just have to be better about not comparing myself. The next question is, how does your former job in publishing impact how you read? This is a great question, and one that I've honestly never really thought about in any kind of an intentional way, so thank you to Katie Hartman on Facebook for asking it. 
Um, my first job in publishing was actually in the sales department of a children's book imprint. And so I think that those years gave me some unique experience in reading books intended for kids from an adult perspective, while also appreciating what it's supposed to be for its intended audience. And that can be tricky. On the podcast, it can be really easy for me to judge books super hard for not meeting my expectations or for not doing what seems, at least to adults, like enough to teach kids about a certain topic. But then I have to walk things back and remember that they're not written for me at this stage in my life. Striking that balance between what makes a story objectively good and what kids are actually going to enjoy must be really hard for authors. And I have so much respect for the people who do it effectively. I think some of that respect and just generally my love for children's books definitely comes from my days in publishing. I also think that working in publishing, specifically on a sales team, makes me more innately curious about how books may have been marketed to different kinds of readers. It also makes me more aware of why certain books may have been especially successful or not. Also, since I'm more aware of all of the moving pieces that happen in order to get a book out into the world, it makes me wonder what kinds of changes may have been made by editors along the way so that it would be more marketable. Where did your love of reading come from? That question is from Miss Maggie May on Insta. My family played a huge role in making me a reader, and I think anybody out there who's listening who's a bookworm can probably say that to some extent as well. I remember reading with my parents from a very young age, and both my mom and my dad were encouraging me to learn to read when I was like a toddler. I also credit my grandmother, um, my nana, who sadly passed away recently, with so much of my passion for books. She was a huge reader herself. When my cousins and I were little, she didn't believe in buying us toys as gifts for the holidays. It was only books. And when I would go to visit her house for a week during the summer, she would always take me to Barnes & Noble on the first night of the trip and let me pick out a stack of books as tall as I wanted. And I think that those experiences really just taught me the value of a book and instilled in me this like excitement about picking out a new book tree. And it just made that process of buying books and choosing books kind of sacred to me. I also had great teachers who encouraged not only my love of reading, but also my love of writing. And as I figured out that I loved to write creatively as well, I just got hungrier for books. I was generally obsessed with all things storytelling at this time. And I also happened to find a group of girlfriends in elementary school who were equally into reading and writing. And I think having them to hang out with at that young age made me feel like it was cool to love books which it obviously is, and I know that now, but I think as a kid, being surrounded by other kids who feel that way just makes you more excited to run with that passion. I got a few questions from listeners and followers about my favorite genre. My friend Ali Avia may have said it best when she asked, is choosing your favorite type of book like choosing your favorite sibling? I love this. It definitely feels a little like trying to pick a favorite sibling, which I would never do. But the best way I can describe my favorite genre is highly character-driven contemporary fiction. Is that even a genre? I'm not sure, but it's my favorite. I love books that are heavy on well-developed characters, especially when those characters are connected in some way as part of the same family or friend group. I love alternating viewpoints. And I would go ahead and recommend some of my favorite books in the genre right now, but I see that a question along those lines is coming up shortly, so I will wait a few minutes. I've also recently started to enjoy reading essays, and I love the occasional good historical fiction book, although I'm pretty picky about historical fiction. I tend to stay away from thrillers, but I am always open to recommendations, so if there's a great thriller that you want me to know about, please do let me know. I also had a few questions about what book first made me fall in love with reading and showed me how to get truly immersed in a story. This is probably pretty predictable for a kid who grew up in the 90s and 2000s, but I'm going to have to say Harry Potter. I'm a huge Potter fan, and I don't think anyone builds worlds more effectively than the queen herself, J.K. Rowling. 
Growing up, fantasy was probably my favorite genre, and there are so many great fantasy series that are really immersive. In hindsight, I think that reading so much fantasy probably helped me fall further in love with reading, since it gave me the chance to fall into so many different worlds. In addition to Harry Potter, I loved the Redwall books and The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings series. I also loved pretty much any book series about horses, and I think those books were immersive in their own way. Saddle Club for the win. Mickle and Barry asked in our SSR podcast Facebook community group, what are your favorite books or the books you always recommend to people? Ooh, big question. Um, My favorite author is Jonathan Franson, and so I'm always recommending The Corrections and Freedom to people who haven't read them. Also, Jonathan Tropper's This Is Where I Leave You, Meg Walzer's The Interestings, and Curtis Sittenfeld's Prep and American Wife. Lately, I've been recommending Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. We read that one for book club earlier this year, and it was a big hit with pretty much everyone in the group. Megan McLean Ware's The Book of Essie was probably my favorite book of 2018. For something a little lighter, especially for my fellow pop culture buffs and Bravo fans, I always suggest Andy Cohen's books, The Andy Cohen Diaries and Superficial. Even though they're technically written for kids, I also think everyone everywhere should read Wonder and The Book Thief. They need to be like required reading for life. I'll include links to all of these books in the show notes so you can check them out. Mickalyn also asked me what book has been on my TBR forever that I just haven't gotten around to. This is such a good question, but such a hard one too, because I feel like I constantly am adding to my to-be-read list and rarely make any good progress on it. I also don't have a great system for tracking my TBR, but a few do come to mind. I've had the Ron Chernow Alexander Hamilton biography on my shelf for a very long time. I don't usually read biographies, but I feel like if I'm going to read one, that's the one it should be. Also, I'm a huge fan of the Hamilton musical, and I'd like to read the source material if I ever get, like, five months to read a single book. I've also been wanting to read Elena Ferrante forever, and I'd like to read Gloria Steinem It's My Life on the Road, which is on my shelf but just keeps getting bumped in favor of other things. These books are newer, so I can't say they've been on my TBR forever, but they're high priorities for me, especially moving into 2019. They're Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper and Michelle Obama's Becoming. Since I'm releasing this episode in mid-December, here's a fun seasonal question for you from shell.kg on Instagram. What is your favorite holiday-themed book or a book that takes place during the holidays? Love this one. Over the last few weeks, I've been deep into Ellen Hilterbrand's Winter Street series, which has been some of the most fun holiday reading ever. The series is about the Quinn family, which consists of four adult children and two sets of divorced parents, so it really appeals to my love of character-driven books. The stories are told in alternate viewpoints, so you get the perspective of each family member. And the overall tone of Winter Street is basically a Hallmark Christmas movie, which just warms my heart. I also love the chance to get lost in a series. I feel like that happens all too rarely in my life as an adult reader. The first book in the series is called Winter Street, and I'm now reading the second book in the series, which is called Winter Stroll. So I would definitely recommend that to you if you're looking for something seasonal. I'm also a big fan of David Sedaris's Holidays on Ice. I try to read at least one story from this collection every December. My favorite is called Santa Land Diaries. I think it's the first one in the book, and it's about the experience of working as an elf in a department store in North Pole. It is hilarious. It literally makes me laugh out loud every time, so I would highly recommend it. And also, even though Harry Potter isn't technically a holiday series, I think there's something very wintry and festive about it. I know there are several listeners out there who try to read Harry around the holidays, which I think is a great idea. The other book that I've tried to reread a few times around this season is Little Women, which I think has like a similarly cozy vibe. Molly Reads asks, if you had to live in one fictional world, what would it be and why? Ugh, I know this is probably boring, but I've got to stay true to my roots and say Hogwarts. The Harry Potter series is so special to me that I don't think I could possibly give another answer and sleep well at night. It's just... My heart is in Hogwarts. What can I say? Tenacious J asks me the question that really sums up 2018 for SSR. What was the most problematic middle grade book that you've read? 
Ooh, where to begin? Um, Harriet the Spy and Nancy Drew may have been the most cringeworthy for me, um, but there were also some elements of Little House on the Prairie and Matilda that definitely did not sit right with me or my guests on those episodes. I'll include quick links to all of those episodes in the show notes so you can get caught up if you want to learn more about why they're so problematic. But to sum it up, I'll just say mean bratty kids rampant sexism, cultural insensitivity, and child abuse. I'm really excited to see what we can uncover with the throwback reads we check out in 2019, and it will be interesting to see, reflecting at this time next year, which books were perhaps the most problematic of the year. And finally, Ever Emma Reads asked me on Instagram about how I select my guests. Can someone apply to be on the podcast with me? Thanks for the question, Emma. Early on, a lot of my guests were friends or friends of friends who are big readers, have podcasts of their own, work in the media, or all of the above. From the beginning, my goal has always been to invite people on the show who are book lovers, of course, but who also aren't afraid to have an opinion even if it's a controversial one, and maybe laugh at an inappropriate joke or two. Um, as this show has developed, I've met most of my guests by networking through the bookstagram and book podcasting worlds. Social media has been such a gift in connecting me with book lovers who are excited to share some book talk with me on the show. I'm always on the lookout for more people who are interested in guesting, so if you're a fan of SSR and think you'd be the right fit, please don't be shy. You can send me a DM via Instagram. My podcast handle is at SSRpod if you're not following already, or email me at hellossrpod at gmail.com. Feel free to email any other questions you might have to that address, and I'm really excited to connect with more of you in 2019 and beyond. That's all the questions I have for today. Thank you so much to everyone who submitted, and I hope you liked this episode. I think it will be fun to do more Q&As in the future, special episodes like this. As a reminder, I'll include links to all of the books that I mentioned in the show notes at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen, so be sure to check those out. Not sure if you know this, but when you shop through those links, you actually support the podcast in the process, so if any of the books I mentioned sound good to you, please don't be shy. Please check out those links and support the show while you do it. Have a great day, listeners. I so appreciate you. I appreciate this community that we've built so far in 2018, and I look forward to seeing you in the new year. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.